I'm recording the class. I just don't know what I'm saying. I'm overlooking the Hudson. Beautiful Palisades. What was that movie? Cop Town or something? Was that that? Yeah. That's Pearl River. They just changed the name. Just give it another two minutes or so. I think there's a couple more people who'll be joining us.
just as a heads up, um, late, it was kind of late this afternoon, so if you haven't checked in the last several hours, there's a new um, outline called Later Middle Ages. Um, which it's kind of a, I, I transferred some stuff on last week's outline to that. So we've got a few more things to cover on the outline that's called early middle ages. And then we'll switch over to that, um, this evening. So just as a heads up. friend joining us this is Brady our two-year-old puppy hi Brady say hello yeah just had dinner nice he loves zoom calls for some reason and there's another in the behind no yeah that's Gracie our uh, she comes from Turks and Caicos we brought her home from vacation years ago wow yeah as you do as you do yeah. We were away this weekend, so he's very needy right now. So. That's nice. I thought maybe he was just interested in church history. Yeah, he really does. He was He's fascinated by the... Aren't you? They say dogs are very, very smart. That's yeah, the Visigoths are his favorite. Visigoths. That's his, all, all that's his thing. thing. Yeah. That's no, fair enough. There's a Spanish blood in these Great Danes, I guess. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's get started. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, hope you all had a good weekend. And um, today our agenda is to kind of uh, cover a couple of remaining topics that were on, I just was mentioning on the outline from last time called Early Middle Ages. And then it, we're not going to cover every last thing because I, I moved some of the, um, going to re, re, ordered the uh, some of the topics and and we're going to cover you know the majority of what's left under the guise of the new outline it's really a psychological ploy for me to feel like i'm making progress um if we can switch to a new outline so you know just please permit me these little these little uh little little victories in the course of our uh, time together so we left off with um uh, last time we left off with Justinian and Hagia Sophia and, and sort of his Justinian's reign and um, oh but but if you recall all the uh, the section we were at if you will was looking at this growing divide between East and West and um, another figure who I think it's fair to say factors into this divide between East and West is one of the, I mean, literally in a sense, one of the great popes in history in that, you know, he got the name great after the fact, uh, but, but one of the more consequential popes, certainly of the first millennium, and that's Pope Gregory the Great. And as, as we talk about Gregory, we'll sort of explain why it is that he's, he's a figure who kind of represents this growing divide. So Gregory was many things. Uh, we certainly could 
you know, spend a lot longer than we're going to talking about him. Um, he was, uh, in, in a sense, if, if we start with his, let's say, his theological contributions, um, he is often called the interpreter of Augustine to the Middle Ages. Interpreter of Augustine to the Middle Ages, which is to say, one of his great contributions was his ability to kind of re reframe, repackage the the teaching, the writing of uh, other figures, and you know, kind of make that understandable and widespread throughout the church during his time as Pope. Augustine was. Um, you know, the key figure that he was sort of influenced by and, and mostly, um, you know, based his own teaching on. In, in a sense, as Pope, Gregory was not, or as a theologian, let's say, Gregory was not um, a, sort of an original speculative thinker for the most part. There are a few, a few areas where that, that may not be the case. But he had a way of kind of systematizing and explaining all that had been um, taught in the West up to that point. And in that way, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very important role as well um, in terms of understanding the transmission of, you know, the development of, of the faith. I think we think primarily about those who, you know, maybe had some original contribution, Augustine on original sin or something like that, you know, really developing a doctrine. And obviously that's very important. But throughout throughout church history, there are certain figures, um, you know, whether they're popes or, or bishops or just, you know, theologians, there are certain figures whose main contribution is in their ability to kind of reinterpret what has already been said and, and help, um, you know, teach that in their own age, and and Gregory was certainly quite quite good at doing that with those who had gone before him. Um, he was born into so that's that's sort of him as theologian. His background as pope was was very much influenced by his um, by his sort of upbringing, by his his family roots. Um, he was born into like a, a sort of senatorial um, family in Rome um, around around the year 540. So he came from kind of like the elite, um, the elite class. And as a result of this, um, when he was in his early 30s, he was made, um, well, the, the title was prefect, but it was essentially like the governor uh, or the mayor, maybe, of the city of, of Rome. So that's like in the 570s. And again, it's because of his sort of, his lineage, his 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 education up to that point, his training. Um, you know, he was made essentially the mayor of Rome. And so he was initially pursuing a kind of civil career, like a political career, basically. Um, but he was drawn to... He was, I mean, he was a Christian. He was born a Christian. Um, but it wasn't until a little bit later in his life that he was drawn to um, the 
clerical life, first the monastic life, um, he makes a decision that he's going to, going to essentially give up all that he has and his family's wealth. He's going to sort of give it away and go join a monastery. In fact, he uses his wealth, the, his family's wealth, to, to try and establish additional new monasteries. So he wants to support the monastic life across the West. Um, and so he does that uh, for a period of time. He becomes a monk. He, he, he spends years in the monastery um but honestly his his sort of natural disposition was probably a little bit too active um you know for that to be a place that he would be willing to sort of settle for the rest of his life he just had a kind of energy that you know he he, he wanted to be sort of a, a person of action and uh, while like monastic life is a, a certain kind of activity, you know, it tends to be more contemplative than active by disposition. And he was um, certainly more active. And so he was, uh, after uh, spending some time in a monastery, he was then designated as the, the Pope's ambassador to the emperor in Constantinople. So the Pope at the time sent Gregory to be his sort of emissary to Constantinople, kind of act on the Pope's behalf with the emperor. Again, another, another important experience for him learning, you know, a lot about uh, how the church works and how the, the papacy is engaged with, um, how the papacy is engaged with the emperor and, and, and other, you know, key political leaders. Um, eventually he goes back to Rome and he's kind of, you know, going back and forth in terms of what he wants to do. And in five, the year 586, he was made the abbot of a monastery. So he goes back into a monastery. He's the abbot, so he's in charge. But a few years later, in the year 590, he was elected pope, uh, which makes him the first monk um, to become pope. And he would be pope for uh, just under 15 years. He died in 604. So he had, again, a kind of a, a very useful background in terms of understanding the um, sort of political and administrative aspects of being the Pope. This is something that's, you know, maybe not the most glamorous thing or, or maybe even not the most sort of spiritually uplifting thing, but, you know, to be, to be Pope or to be even a, to be a bishop, there are many different backgrounds and, and sort of types of ways that you can be effective. But a lot of times these positions are, and this was even the case in the, you know, in the sixth century, these positions are, are heavily administrative functions. Um, and, you know, and, and also like kind of governance function, having, having a strong governance function. And I say that because um, uh, and, uh, 
you know, I could you could think of some and maybe we'll point them out as we go. Occasionally you encounter these popes in church history who are, you know, incredibly pious and deeply devout and you know, have an unquestioned sanctity. But they sh they struggle in many ways to be effective as pope because their job, if you will, their their role, their ministry includes very kind of concrete administrative and, and governing functions that, that they may not always be um, suited for. And what that can sometimes result in is, you know, the, the people around them who are, are maybe a little bit um, either either more familiar with the, these roles or maybe opportunistic can sometimes, you know, kind of take control. And, and so it's... Um, my point here is is actually to say that Gregory does not suffer from sort of this deficiency. He has a you know a very strong background in sort of developing the interior life and the spiritual life by virtue of his being a monk and spending time in the monastery. But he also had a very solid background in kind of how to handle the worldly affairs, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just sort of in what the job was, the worldly affairs of being Pope. And as a result, he was an unusually, I mean, frankly, an unusually effective Pope. Um, you know, just to try and situate, because we've been jumping around or whatever, chronologically, just to try and situate him, you know, this is, this is the end of the sixth century. Um, you know, there are any number of, we're still kind of in the, in the throes of the various tribes, the various um, Germanic tribes working their way across Western Europe. It's before, you know, it's before everything we talked about last time with Charlemagne, with them, sorry, with uh, Charles Martel and, and the Carolingian dynasty kind of making this alliance with the papacy. So things were, were fairly unstable um you know in western europe and and very 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 much subject to the, the progress or or the um advances of these of these tribes and gregory took a, a leading role in kind of asserting a, a bit of authority around the sort of around the city of rome and and the immediate surrounding area so um the Lombards, if you remember them from last time, who were sort of in, mainly in northern Italy, they were the main threat during Gregory's um, right. during Gregory's time, his his papacy, right. and he yeah. saw it as one of his his sort of chief objectives to keep Rome free or at least unconquered no. by the Lombards, and to wow. do that, um, you know, he raised an army. Um, and, uh, you know, saw to it that it was, um, you know, capable and able to defend the city of Rome. It's that fucking bridge that goes over the fucking, uh, and mo at times it was, it was somewhat tense and difficult and, you know, he faced, uh, you know, there were some, some difficulties with the Lombards, but eventually he was able to negotiate, um, a kind of truce with them. And during his his pontificate, the city of Rome remained unconquered. 
one of the reasons that he was um well there's several reasons that he's he's um effective and and you know influential i should say um and certainly his his ability to protect the city of rome you know was important but it also was a good example of the elevation in stature of the pope at the time especially as it pertained to the west the, like the western half of the roman empire i think i've said this at least in one moment but it bears sort of observation it bears repeating this, this observation when constantine leaves rome you know in the 300s in the early 300s and he goes to constantinople it creates and, and moves the capital there uh, the political capital it creates a a bit of a vacuum uh, for you know a, a, like the western half of the roman empire and who is you know really the leader there and then shortly thereafter you know within a hundred years the west is sort of falling apart as a result of these invasions the pope the, you know several of the popes during this period of you know the fifth sixth seventh century you know wind up becoming the sort of de facto leaders of the western half of the roman empire even if sometimes there were if you remember there were these nominal western roman emperors who had been appointed but they were very often you know puppets of the, the germanic tribes or whatever but the fact that the emperor was all the way over in constantinople created this space if you will this opportunity for um you know some figure in in the western half of the empire to really establish himself as as a key sort of leader and uh the pope wound up being that figure and gregory was a you know one of the best examples of this such that you know if 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 we were you know if you could have sort of surveyed the this is speculative but i mean i think there's there's some it's not far-fetched if you could have you know done a survey of the the gothic tribes the germanic tribes uh in the in the, in the end of the sixth at the end of the sixth century and said you know who do you think is the most sort of powerful or, or effective political leader chances are uh you know Gre gregory would have done quite well in that sort of survey uh, against the emperor that was actually located in constantinople like that guy was you know hundreds of miles away had very little to do with what was going on in the west and instead you had this um this uh bishop of rome who was who was you know much more involved in you know what was going on in and around italy and france and so uh what we see is the you know the continued rise of the role of the pope in the western in the western world and gregory again is is a key figure in this um and it was all the more enhanced by his by his effectiveness as pope in addition to this uh 
you know, protection of the city of Rome. He engaged in a number of missionary activities. Um, uh, importantly and, and critical uh, within this uh, aspect of his, his papacy was a, a pretty ambitious campaign to England which was honestly sort of moderately successful and planted the seeds of continued missionary work in, in England, but also in parts of Northern Europe that were not uh, very, very much uh, Christian at the time. He also engaged in a tremendous amount of charitable work um, as Pope. You know, he funded lots of um, lots of activities to well, help poor in not you know mostly in in the city of Rome, but also so in, in other nearby cities. Um, you know, he was very effective shit. at um, you know, sort of administering the the treasury of the of the He's of course very much known to us in a in a in a broader way, in a liturgical sense, because of his his desire to bring about a reformation, if you will, kind of yeah, reformation is a fair enough word in church music and liturgical music. Um, he wanted to see it sort of a little bit more standardized and formalized and also, you know, to, to create music that was somewhat more elevated, I think, I think we could say. And so under Gregory's sort of watchful eye, a number of, um, you know, sort of musicians were involved in um, the creation of liturgical chant, which, you know, has come down to us with Gregory's name attached, so we yeah. call it Gregorian chant. Um, but certainly, yeah, he, he, he was not the only one who had, no, you know, sort of, of that, inclination, but as Pope, and, he, he was you know, involved he wanted, in, he to bring the again, seeing to so the integration of this new form of liturgical the, music into the Mass, you know, um, and, and exactly. You know, from that point forward, chant or Gregorian chant would play, you know, a key role really in liturgical development for the, you know, for centuries to come. My balls and I'm covering everybody's cases. Marita can't do this. Rosenberg can't do that. Two other things I think worth noting. I told him that. I told him that when he first started. I mentioned, you know, his his theology. There wasn't a ton of. Maybe new stuff. One area where there, you know, it, it is often sort of attributed. There is, I'm, I'm sorry, one area where there is some kind of original contribution, often attributed to him, um, was the development of the church's teaching and, and understanding of purgatory. Like so many of these areas. You know, you don't want to say that he, he created it or came up with it um, because, you know, he was really sort of drawing out um, 
further explanation of teachings that were already, you know, partially expressed or had been expressed by others in uh, in previous ages. Um, but during his his life, but especially when he was pope, um, you know, he wrote in, in some of his writings and stuff. You see his reflection and thinking about the need for a sort of um, place or time of, of purification after after death um, and that you know this place in, in, in his view again he's building on um, some early texts Augustine you know starts to get close to this in some of his writings um, although he winds up being a little bit uncertain in the end he, Augustine had said you know, the idea of purgatory was not improbable, a double negative, not improbable, so it's kind of a possibility, but he kind of left it at that. Augustine could not express certainty about the teaching. Um, Gregory took that much further. Um, he thought it was, uh, you know, completely sensible and, and justified by the, you know, biblical text and, and other early church text. And importantly, Gregory um, taught that belief in purgatory was a, a matter um, essential to, a matter of belief essential to the faith. So that's elevating the, um, you know, the importance of the teaching, you know, a considerable amount. also um, a great preacher I, I mean I, sh I could have said that maybe at the beginning as well um, but of the again th there are a handful of, of figures that are um, you know that stand out for their for their preaching um, in, in the early church Ambrose in the fourth century and the fifth century but others after and Gregory the Great certainly one of the great um, no pun intended, uh, early medieval preachers. Okay. Any questions about Gregory? So, this is, you know, this is one of the, the moments where it starts to get, like, a little bit jarring. So now, the next person we want to look at um, is Emperor Leo III. So I'm, I'm, I'm pulling, a, a, like, a double transition here, because we're switching from ecclesiastical to secular, if you will. We're going from a pope to an emperor, so now we're looking at the political leader. We're going from Rome to Constantinople, so we're kind of switching halves of the of the empire. And then importantly, we're fast forwarding a century. So we're going from you know the end of the sixth, beginning of the seventh, to the early eighth century, the early seven hundreds. Leo the third was an, uh, was a an emperor, you know, again in Constantinople, who was. Um, you know, actually quite strong-willed. He, he, I think, fashioned himself in the 
in the mold of Justinian, you know, that he would be a, the next great emperor in the East, um, but with much less, with much less um, aptitude at, at um, you know, military conquests, we could say. And so, you know, he, he had these grand aspirations. He was certainly very motivated and active as emperor, but was not, um, you know, not the success, uh, did not enjoy the success that Justinian had, had uh, experienced, you know, about 200 years prior to that. Importantly for our story, um, there are two areas where Leo III, the emperor at the, you know, during his, his reign, engaged in sort of controversies, I think it's, it's fair to say, that, you know, will kind of continue to drive this wedge between East and West. The, the first area was on uh, taxation. And, you know, even it's, it's one of these very sort of strange things to stop and think about, but because technically speaking, you know, we're in the 700s, right? So we're, you know, we're now a couple hundred years into this sort of fractured Western empire with the various Germanic tribes. And we're not quite there with uh, the Carolingians, with the Franks. You know, that's, that's um, the middle of the 700s, 751, that, that um, Pippin the Short gets crowned emperor by, uh, by the Pope. But it's been a while since the Western half of the empire was sort of unified and intact. Despite all of the turmoil, you know, with the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals, and despite all the turmoil, the emperor in Constantinople still had an expectation that all of the Western half would be contributing taxes to Constantinople. You know, he didn't recognize, the emperors in Constantinople did not recognize the, you know, the lack of um, jurisdiction over, you know, the West, even though, I mean, they pretty clearly did not have any control in, in, a, in a, a real way. They still tried to maintain a kind of title to being the emperor of, you know, what we would call today like Western Europe. So Leo III says, you know, we've got a big problem here. We've got too many, too many um, parts of, you know, sort of the Western half of the empire are not, are not, um, you know, paying their what they owe to to the emperor by by way of taxation in the west they were like you know making a legitimate claim because you know servers had gone down and so e-filing was was all wonky and they couldn't they just couldn't get those um like h&r block was having all sorts of you know technical difficulties i think um, and so there, there were just all these challenges, right, around paying taxes. There were also, you know, great opportunity to save your to save your money if you're in the West, because, you know, in, in Constantinople, you had the emperor and you had his army, 
you know, but there wasn't a huge military presence for the emperor in the West because, you know, so much of it had been driven back east as a result of the tribes as well as, well as the threat of Islam. So, you know, you didn't have tax collectors or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, members of the imperial army who could act as tax collectors really threatening too much in the West. And so, you know, there was just this problem of, of from the perspective of the emperor, that, that he wasn't, you know, that, that, that the, the Western cities weren't paying their taxes. So he issues, Leo III issues a number of new edicts trying to, you know, streamline, but then also enforce um, uh, the taxation across the western half of the empire. A number of um, a number of key cities in the west refuse to comply with Leo's um, with Leo's edicts. Among them, quite importantly was the the pope the bishop of rome at the time a guy called gregory ii who who said you know we're, we're not going to comply with this and you might say well what what is that about you know that jesus seems to have something to say about rendering to caesar and all of that um the argument from the west is like this is you know this is silly like this is a leftover um, sort of vested, this is like the, the vestige of the way things used to be, but are no longer. Um, you know, if, if the, um, the British Parliament, you know, tried to levy taxes on us as, you know, a former English colony or something, um, you know, I suspect most of us would be not inclined to, to pay, right? We would say, well, that's very interesting. You know, there's a sovereign political entity. It's in charge of a country. It can levy taxes. Maybe once upon a time, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it would levy taxes on the people who used to live in New York and they would pay them, um, you know, because they were under a different political arrangement where the King of England was, you know, actually in charge but that was you know a couple hundred years ago that's no longer the case so we don't get anything you know from england um you know we get these these bums you know in, in the royal family with their stupid interviews and oprah i mean you know that's all we're getting from them these days we get lousy food um you know what's a good english dish i mean they put vinegar on their french fries for god's sake uh, you know what is that about so why should we no i'm, I'm just gonna just pause there that's, um, a, that's so, a mortal sin what's that that's a mortal sin to do that no i agree that's delicious don't even oh oh wait let me let me mark in my participation here extra points for george <laughs> minus 10 for chris um what about mayonnaise, too? They put mayonnaise on french fries too by the way <clears throat> you know um I don't know, probably many of you may know the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Yes. Um, he has a bit about this, which, I, I mean, I think I was sort of subconsciously thinking about. 
but the joke is, and I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's like, how bad does your food have to be when the thing you put on it to make it taste better is vinegar? And, and, and I think he's not wrong. Um, so anyway, um, my point was, obviously, this has to do with Leo III and taxing the cities in the Western Roman Empire. I mean, it's just the connection is clear as day. Um, but seriously, the point was that the West, including the Pope, were saying, you know, we're not going to, to pay these. And, you know, honestly, not a lot happened. There was some, you know, frustration on the part of Leo III. But the reason I bring it up is because you're starting to see the um, the realization or the recognition that you know this idea, this concept of kind of a unified empire that that the emperor in Constantinople was holding on to, you know, that this is really increasingly being exposed as a kind of illusion. Or, or just not real anymore. I mean, the emperor in Constantinople had territory that he controlled. It was mostly around, you know, Asia Minor, around modern-day Turkey. It did not extend into Western Europe anymore. He didn't want to, you know, the emperors didn't want to recognize that. They thought they should be able to levy taxes, you know, all the way as far west as, you know, France and Spain. But there really was no, there was no sort of justification for holding on to that view and this sort of episode around the taxation of the West under Leo III illustrated that, you know, both, but that the West saw themselves as separate now um, and not really under the, under the, the reign, if you will, or the rule of the emperor. The other, the other uh, main issue and one that I think we very, very briefly touched on. I don't even think much was said, but it had to do with a, a, a controversy about uh, the veneration or the use and ultimately the veneration of images or icons. You know, there was certainly. Um, a, a long tradition in the across the church, you know, both in the West and the East, in uh, the use of, of icons. But uh, for basically, as long as you have that tradition, you also have some in the church kind of warning against it, um, expressing concern that um, you know, using icons, whether painted or statues or, or whatever, the use of images, um, you know, could too easily become or was already, in fact, um, an instance of idolatry. And again, the prevailing view was that properly understood the images, you know, it's, it's acceptable to use icons to assist in worship. Um, that changed under... Um, under Leo III in the year 726, he forbids the use of, um, of icons in worship.
And this led to a pretty strong reaction against the emperor um, and the emperor's edict. Part of it was a, a sort of a reaction against from a place of like, you know, tradition and piety where, you know, in, in monasteries, for example, the monks certainly use, but then also it, sort of the common people had grown accustomed to, you know, seeing saints and, and seeing even, you know, Mary and Christ depicted. Um, so there was kind of a popular resistance to the edict. But there was also a resistance on the grounds of, you know, what is, how is the emperor making this call? You know, how is it the emperor's decision whether or not we can use images in worship or not? And so they saw this as like overly interfering in the life of the church. And, and there was a tremendous split. Um, it was, it, the resistance tended to be much stronger in the western half of the empire. Leo III, um, the emperor dispatched his army to enforce this decree. This included um, this included the forceful removal of icons from churches, destruction of them in some cases. Um, but again, the distance between Constantinople and Rome you know, was effectively too great for these decrees to be forceful. And so you have another example, and this one, you know, much more religious in nature, where the popes, a series of popes resist Leo III's decree about the use of icons. And in fact, a Roman, a Roman, geez, Roman synod in the year 731 under the leadership of uh, now Gregory the Third, so we have a series of Gregories. Um, Gregory, Pope Gregory the Third, leads a Roman synod that ex excommunicates the iconoclasts, which is to say, iconoclasts are those that you know that are against the use of icons that want them either removed or destroyed. So this obviously includes the emperor. So you have the pope excommunicating the emperor. That's a recipe for, um, you know, ill feelings and conflict. The emperor Leo III's response is to um, assert control over Sicily, you know, off of the coast, you know, southern Italy, a little island, right? Um, that had been kind of under the pope's jurisdiction, but now he's moving in to say, no, no, it belongs to the emperor. So again, he, he kind of responds to this excommunication by taking territory from the Pope. Leo III's son, so after, this is after Leo dies, you know, the, the controversy continues, the iconoclast controversy continues. His son, whose name was Constantine, and he was the number five, Constantine V, um actually convened again the emperor in constantinople had a very powerful you know influence over the patriarch of constantinople and so in, in 754 there was a synod in constantinople that condemned 
the use of icons. It also approved. Um, it also approved the authority of the emperor in church matters, because that was one of the things that was was being disputed. Like that, the emperor doesn't have the ability to say yes or no to icons. That's a church matter. That's a liturgical matter, um, or ecclesiastical, I should say. Um, and so, the the emperor kind of sees to it, but you know, by influencing the patriarch of Constantinople, there's a synod in Constantinople that condemns the use of icons and and approves the emperor's involvement in the affairs of the church. So you have kind of mutual. Um, East and West taking their respective positions here. The popes, you know, really held the line um, in terms of permitting icons. And, and so you had a further division between West and East right. as a result of the iconoclast controversy. This, by the way, was another dynamic, this sort of even though there wasn't a sort of clear and present, like kind of immediate physical danger to the Pope or, you know, to the Popes in the middle of the 700s, this was a part of the dynamic that led to the Popes being, you know, in, in need of assistance and ultimately, you know, all too happy to turn to the Franks for protection because you know, they had, had experienced a situation where they'd lost control of Sicily and the emperor in Constantinople was sort of making some threatening moves towards towards the Pope because he wasn't going along with his, his view of icons. And so, you know, this alliance with the Carolingians, with Charles Martel, and then eventually, uh, I'm sorry, with Pippin, I should say, and then eventually Charlemagne, this alliance didn't just help, you know, ward off the Lombards, but it also was, you know, added protection for, uh, you know, potential problems with the Eastern Emperor. This, this period, um, I think it's fair to say, politically, you know, by the end of the 700s, by the end of the 8th century, politically, East and West have clearly gone their separate ways. Um, you know, the, the Franks are, are ruling, you know, Charlemagne in the year 800, right? Charlemagne is basically ruling Western Europe in a very close alliance with the Pope um, and, and the emperor sort of with the patriarch of Constantinople has a very different approach. Um, let me just finish the story on the iconoclast controversy. It's one of those things where you know, sometimes it's just like a generational or or a, sort of a question of a different person being in charge that leads to a, diff, a different result. Um, and in this case, it was the next emperor after Constantine V, Constantine VI. I'm sorry, there was an, actually one in between them. After Constantine V came another one, and then Constantine VI, who was... Um, Again, interestingly, you know, we saw this last time with um, the conversion of Clovis to Christianity, where sometimes, you know, the the women in the story that maybe don't get 
as much recognition are, are, are often sort of the driving force behind, you know, key developments. And last time, you know, we said it was Clovis's wife who sort of influenced him to convert to Orthodox, like to Orthodox Christianity, to like Nicene Christianity. In the case of Constantine the Sixth, it wasn't his wife, but rather his mother, a woman named Irene, who was um, very much in favor of um, the use of icons. She found them, you know, worthwhile and and not not a problem. Um, you know, people around the emperor who were reacting to the, to the, the mother of the emperor was saying, you know, come on, Irene. All right. I got I lyrics, song. Yeah. A couple, a couple people, people <laughs> still awake, not even eight o'clock. We're doing well. Um, a good British song. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, so it is one of these situations where Irene influences her son, Constantine the sixth to kind of ease off the um ease off the you know restrictions if you will and this ultimately frankly leads to another general council and, and this was probably a wise idea because there had been so much you, you know there have been so many different decrees you know from east and west and so this leads to another general council meeting again in nicaea um, you know, same same city as in 325, this time in the year 787. And so this is like the second council of Nicaea or Nicaea II in 787. And uh, the second council of Nicaea decreed that icons, the cross, the gospels should, this is a quote, should be given due salutation and honorable reverence not indeed true worship, which attain, which pertains alone to the divine nature. And it goes on to say the honor which is paid to the image passes on to that which the image represents. And he who shows reverence to the image shows reverence to the subject represented in it. So there you have a kind of, you know, three sentence explanation of what, you know, the, the kind of mainstream uh, orthodox, you know, lowercase o orthodox understanding of uh, you know icons and, and images and how they work in christianity that it's not about you know honoring or or idolizing you know any particular image so much as it is you know um, showing reverence or honor to what's being represented or the subject of the image one thing that you know deserves to be mentioned here going back to leo the third and, and and honestly, even you know, even prior to Leo the Third, this is is an influence. Last time, you know, we saw very briefly, and when we were looking at those maps, you can kind of see the spread of Islam clearly is, is impacting the views of the emperor, a number of emperors in Constantinople. Obviously, Islam had incredibly strict rules against representations of Allah or, or even the prophet as we all too unfortunately know from you know the Charlie Hebdo and, and other you know very recent incidents where um, you know portraying 
either either Allah or the Prophet Muhammad is, you know, uh, absolutely prohibited, forbidden. And so it's it's uh, certainly the case that the spread of Islam was putting pressure on the emperor in Constantinople, and this particular aspect of Christianity and their use of images, including images depicting Christ and, and God the Father, uh, you know, he the, the emperors were likely influenced by you know sort of fear that, or or, or, or or the sense that maybe there was an opportunity here to you know find a little bit of commonality with with Islam, but and not not seeming to be so um, you know heretical from the perspective of Islam that they would that they would idolize um, you know all of these these important figures by depicting them via image. So that's a, a driving factor. But again, in the West, um, this tradition was, was well established and they did not have the same concerns about the rise of, of um, Islam. And so um, we see, again, another incident that further drives a wedge between uh, West and East. The outcome, right, is um, an, an acceptance of of icons um, properly understood, but but you have you know uh, about fifty years or so of of real animosity and 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 um, kind of conflict between east and west. Okay, any questions about Leo the Third or the iconoclast controversy? Um. um I'm just wondering, is there any kind of um, relationship between the view of art at all with this iconoclast controversy? Was it development or the lack of development or the lack of acceptance, or was this just totally in on its own with the with the with the icons used in the church? I think I, if I'm if I'm understanding the question, I would say it's closer to the second. Um, less a function of any development or lack of development in art so much as really a, a kind of question or yeah a reaction to the content of of the art in this case i mean there wasn't anything inherently there was the, the east you know the emperor didn't view you know the depiction of uh, whatever socrates as as necessarily problematic but the use of art to portray um you know god especially was you know that it was the subject that that was driving this controversy not so much the like the artistic medium or, or anything like that and again to be clear it's it, it doesn't appear out of nowhere i mean even going back to the you know the early centuries you know third fourth fifth centuries there were voices who expressed concern about this and it's, it's not like there's no reason. I mean, read the Old Testament, and it's like you can see how people get carried away. Um, and next thing you know, you've got, you know, golden calves and, and the rest of it. Um, and so, you know, that, that concern was there, you know, in most periods or stages of, of church history. I wouldn't say there was any particular sort of artistic spark for this in you know in the eighth century as much as you know sort of political changes the rise of islam and other factors that brought that brought this to the you know to the forefront 
Okay. Um, so what were, uh, well, let me just talk about briefly about, um, to, to the last two things I want to talk about on this early middle ages outline, um, sort of Nicholas the first, and then the, 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 um, the decline, decline of the papacy, um, at the, at the end of the ninth century, um, is, is kind of where we'll make our transition. So I guess the last thing actually I'll talk about is Nicholas the first. So we're about to enter into a period. You don't really see this. Um, yeah, I guess you, I wouldn't say, I can't think of it a, a really, you know, good example until we, we start to get into this, you know, ninth century and beyond period, where it's kind of like, um, uh, scales or whatever, like an old scale, a balance scale where it often is going to be the case, you know, in the nut from the ninth century through the, you know, 12th, 13th century, this isn't a perfect observation in terms of, you know, it always applies, but in general, there's, there's something to this dynamic that there are periods where the papacy, the popes are kind of strong. And, and so they're kind of up. And at the same time, the emperor or whoever the, you know, the preeminent political leader in, in Europe is, will be like kind of down. And then there'll be other periods where the popes will be kind of in decline. And often it's the case that the, that the king or the emperor or whomever in the West will be up. And so it's, it's not the case that they never simultaneously are both like strong figures, but it does tend to um, often play out in this kind of, you know, I mean, I want to call it a roller coaster, but it's not really that where sometimes, you know, the one is up, the other's down. And then the other one is up and the other, you know, the papacy is up empire down and then it switches. And so we'll see that, you know, a little bit more strongly, um, kind of very shortly here as, as we continue through, but it's, it's worth mentioning Nicholas the first, um, because he, he represents Pope Nicholas the first represents, um, a kind of first, um, first instance of the, the Pope being up and, and the empires, the political leaders being down. And that's going to switch very, very abruptly, um, towards the end of the ninth century, as we'll see. But Pope Nicholas represents a kind of high point in many ways for the papacy, um, you know, in this, in this early middle ages period. So Nicholas the first, um, who's also called Nicholas the Great, Pope, Pope Nicholas the Great, um, was, you know, kind of after Gregory the Great, um, probably the next, you know, chronologically, the next, like, most consequential Pope of the early Middle Ages. So you have Gregory the Great, like, at the end of the 500s, died in 604, the next Pope who was like really consequential, really effective, you know, really noteworthy is Nicholas the first. 
858, he becomes Pope. He was, you know, like Gregory, a tr tremendously effective in doing the things that needed to be done as Pope, a very strong administrator and, and incredibly assertive individual. He had a, had a way of, you know, making his will known and, and translating that into reality. He, uh, Nicholas believed in, in uh, sort of making real the ideas that Augustine taught in the city of God what, with respect to the, the role of the church. And so Nicholas had a sort of um, a number of, you know, kind of core beliefs that guided his certificate. The first is that the church is superior to all earthly powers. The church is superior to all earthly powers, number one. Number two, under kind of following from that, the ruler of the entire church is the pope. So you put those two together and Nicholas, you know, Nicholas I is making the claim that, you know, he is superior to all earthly powers. And then the third sort of piece of this was that the bishops of the church are the sort of agents of the Pope and agents of the church, if you will, so that the bishops are also superior um, by virtue of their connection to the Pope. Obviously, this is, um, you know, quite a strong view of things. There were some instances, however, where he was able to, Nicholas I was able to, you know, kind of try, you know, try and put these into practice. Um, one was, you know, with a, um, a marriage dispute, which, you know, history, history will, will repeat itself on, on this front you know, several more times, obviously, importantly, at the time of the Reformation in England, but um, there was a king of the, the territory of Lorraine, which is kind of between France and Germany, if you know Alsace-Lorraine, historically, is constantly going back and forth. Um, so there was a king, a kingdom there, um, and the king wanted to, um, you know, uh, tale as old as time, you know, fairy, what fairy tales are made of. The king wanted to divorce his wife and marry his mistress. Um, he says, no, 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 you're, you're married to, to your wife. Um, you know, not, not to the, to the second one. And again, you know, maybe that's like, it's not obvious maybe why that's important, but you know, that's, that's the assertion of, you know, his considerable power in a, in a concrete way, in a, in a sort of local dispute to not just overrule two bishops, where I think that that was pretty well understood to be something that the Pope could do, but he excommunicates them. And then beyond that, he, he really did sort of thwart the wishes of, of the, um, of King of Lorraine, you know, to marry this other woman. There's also another 
you know, another incident where an archbishop had had sort of fired um, one of his suffragan bishops. So, like, the, the metropolitan is like the archbishop. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the church, the way the church is organized is it's broken down into provinces, ecclesiastical provinces. And the, the, the person at the top of the, the like, the, the person in charge of each province is the metropolitan. You know who the metropolitan is because they're um, archbishops. And then suffragan dioceses are um, the name for the other dioceses that are members of the province, sort of theoretically kind of under under the you know under the control of the metropolitan. Now in today's church, you know the arch the metropolitan the archbishop certainly has some real authority, but it, today it's you know it's much more collegial, you know kind of collaborative. There's not really you know supposed to be a, a big difference between the authority of the archbishop over and against his his member bishops. So, you know, in New York, you know, there's a, 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 the province, the ecclesiastical province of New York is the eight dioceses in New York State. And, you know, the Archbishop of New York, uh, New York, uh, the Archdiocese of New York is the Metropolitan. Other eight bishops are um, suffragan. The other seven bishops are suffragan bishops. In Connecticut, it's what, Hartford, right? Is that right? Yeah. So the Archdiocese of Hartford, so the Archbishop of Hartford is the, the Metropolitan. Um, so the situation here is in, in um, uh, essentially modern-day Germany, but um, in, in that, those territories, a, a Metropolitan Archbishop kind of fired one of the other bishops he didn't like. Um, this seemed to be kind of done out of personal animosity the the bishop himself hadn't done anything wrong so the bishop appeals to the pope who overturns the metropolitan's decision and reinstates the bishop so i mentioned that because it again it speaks to a real assertion of the authority of the pope to overrule archbishops and you know reinstate um, reinstate a, a, a suffragan bishop if they want. And today, we might not think anything of that, right? Like, I think maybe we have the, the sense that today that's the way the papacy works, that the Pope has that authority. My point in raising it here is to say, it, you know, in, it wasn't self-evident from the beginning that popes could do that. Um, but by the eighth, uh, sorry, by the, yeah, by the ninth century, you know, you see this example of, um, you know, the Pope very clearly intervening in the governance of other other dioceses, and you know, it's it's um, just again another step in sort of the direction of, or another step in the development of under you know understanding a kind of ecclesiology that has the Pope you know exercising tremendous authority over the Church universally. Which, which again, in the early church was not not really the case. I mean, the pope had special significance and importance, but in terms of getting involved in the affairs of other other dioceses, like without their necessarily without their appeal or or whatever, um, it was far less likely to, to 
did occur. But now the, the Pope under, you know, strong leadership like Gregory the Great, and now Nicholas the Great, um, are, uh, you know, the Popes are getting involved in, in both political and in ecclesiastical affairs outside of, you know, Rome or outside of even Italy. And, and they're um, sort of deserting their, their will. Did Nicholas still have the army? Say that again. Did Nicholas maintain the army? The army in terms of, how do you mean? Like when you said um, um, Gregory, you know, had military. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So, so by this time now, we are, um, we're, we're in the creation of, we have the papal states, you know, thanks to the false donation of Constantine and everything. And, and so we have, you know, Nicholas is even more of a kind of political ruler than Gregory would have been. Gregory sort of raises an army, um, in part due to the necessity of, of the situation. But by the time we get the creation of the papal states, um, you know, in, in the, in the eighth century, in the 700s, you know, from that point forward, there's basically a, a standing army for the papal states until the 19th century. Um, it's just, they, I mean, you, you can think of it as essentially a fully functioning independent nation at that point with the Pope as the king. Um, and, you know, all of that entailed an army, a system of taxation, you know, um, postage stamps, whatever. They, they had it all. Okay. Um, so we're at our point to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll switch outlines to the later Middle Ages. And what we'll see is a tremendous, tremendous um, inversion of sort of who's up and who's down, which is to say Nicholas I is, you know, getting involved in nullifying divorces and, you know, reinstating archbishops or reinstating bishops, so, you know, over and against archbishops. And when we come back, we'll see a real drop-off period sometimes are often called the dark ages of the papacy um, where you know a series of you know quite bad popes um, come into the picture and we'll see how that changes sort of the dynamic between church and state and we'll also see the really pivotal crucial frankly role that you know German kings will play political leaders will play in kind of rescuing the papacy in many ways and rescuing the church, um, sort of saving it from itself. So, uh, let's take 15 minutes, come back at, uh, no, just about eight 30, I guess. There's a, there's a great parody of Come On Eileen. I just looked at it. It's really funny. It's, it's Come On Vaccine. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah, it's really funny. I just listened to it. It's about five minutes. So I hear as I was going out that... Uh, 
midterms canceled? We don't have to turn it in? <laughs> you no, know, yeah. Everyone who's turned it in already gets an A, and everybody who hasn't turned it in gets a zero. I think that's what we decided. <laughs> Defines my life. That's perfect. I'm living up to my parents' expectations. <laughs> century papacy and, and into the 10th century but well, well I should say a little bit more in, in, into the first half of 50 years or so 60 years of the 10th century is when we really see a particularly you know so-called dark age or the dark ages of the papacy which I would you know, in this case, not not quibble with at all. Um, um, there are a number of reasons for that, as we'll see, but um, it really begins this period of um, of decline. Really begins uh, with a kind of series of rivalries that emerge in in Rome primarily, but also extended in some in some cases to other Italian cities. But a series of rivalries um, that that extended beyond sort of, you know between families is what I'm trying to say. Like rivalries between different families of, of importance and connections in Rome that, um, you know, we're often very politically connected and, you know, it's like the 10th century, so I don't want to overstate their wealth, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're, you know, more uh, among more wealthy landowners, but also politically connected. And what you see is, and, and really this, this is also the story behind this, you know, the period in, into the night and hundreds of the dark ages of the papacy, but you see these factions, these kind of rival, rivaling, rivaling families, um, working against each other, plotting. Um, it's very hard not to draw parallels to, you know, the, the mafia or something in, in this country and, you know, the five families and, you know, moving against each other and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, to a degree, it was, it, it's like that in some ways, right? Not in all ways. Um, you know, the popes weren't in waste management. Um, but uh, but they they certainly, you know, the same some of the same dynamics about fam familial and generational rivalry um, is, is what's going on. So at the end of the ninth century at the end of the 800s we have one of the more um 
bizarre uh, spectacles, if you will, which is, uh, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want us to get too bogged down in the, uh, the details, if you will, uh, which are not complicated, but like almost too, too confusing to, to, to be beneficial. Um, except to say that there were kind of two, two, two power centers of power that were going after each other and, and then installing their person as, as Pope. Um, and for a period, a guy called, um, a guy called Formosus, Pope Formosus, it's in the chat box, um, you know, had been supported by one of these families. But after he died, um, the, the other family, you know, his Formosus's sort of rival um, took control and the Pope that uh, succeeded Formosus was a guy called Stephen VI. Pope Stephen VI was really focused on, um, you know, the devotion of his people and evangelization and, you know, Eucharistic adoration. No, just kidding. He was focused on revenge. Um, and so he had a, a very um, inventive strategy because he felt like, you know, he and his friends, his family had been wronged by his predecessor. So he decided to call a synod and to put Pope Formosus on trial at the synod. And I mean, literally put him on trial. It, you may have heard about this. It leads to this really wonderful painting that's from the 19th century of the so-called cadaver synod. Um, where you see Stephen the sixth, um, being, being tried by, I'm sorry, put it, putting Pope Formosus on trial, I should say. And, you know, it's very strange. Um, can you see that? All right. It's very strange. Uh, Formosus kept asserting his right to remain silent. Um, which, you know, hey, he's, he's more than owed that right. Um, so this is the famed cadaver synod. I've often thought, you know, a little bit resentful. Like, you know, in my lifetime, we've had, you know, like a synod on marriage and a synod on the family and a synod on young people. And I mean, like, that's kind of boring, right? Compared to the cadaver synod. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We don't want to see any more cadaver synods. Um, it, it would be pretty interesting to have like, you know, a ticket from the cadaver synod or something, uh, like a press pass. But um, you, you'll be shocked to know at this cadaver synod that, that Pope Formosus was actually found guilty. Uh, very surprising uh, outcome, you know, that that nonetheless led to his body, this is the body of the deceased Pope, being um, 
Uh, well, different legends have it different ways. In some cases, it was said that he was thrown into the Tiber. Um, in others, it was said that his body was... Um, oh, my favorite. I actually have it in my notes because the one historian had such a euphemism. Treated with extreme indignity. That his body was treated with extreme indignity after he was found guilty. Um, what was so interesting about it is... Uh, the Pope Stephen actually um, generated a backlash. It was seen as so over the top what he had done that Pope Stephen sort of sparked a riot of uh, a revolt as such that Stephen wound up um, being imprisoned as, as a result of the riot where he was strangled to death. So, you know, just your, your usual people... <laughs> you know, papal stories, uh, you know, the, the, the cadaver of the previous Pope is put on trial, then, you know, desecrated while the guy who did it gets thrown in jail and strangled to death. Can you uh, again why he was placed on trial? Well, I, I mean, what I was, charge I, was yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So, I mean, it really had, to, I mean, the real, the real reason had to do with sort of the maneuvering that had led to, not just the the acquisition of the papacy by Formosus, um, but actually by the sort of political um, political favor that he gave to a guy called Lambert. I mean, I don't want you to get too bogged down, but the Pope, Formosus as Pope, was able to kind of tip the scales to enable this guy to become a, a political leader in Italy. And in doing so, in doing so, he sort of thwarted Stephen's, um, I think it was actually, it, it was a family member, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it wasn't Stephen himself, but somebody uh, that he was close with was thwarted by this guy Lambert, who had been put in this political position, essentially by Pope Formosus. And so, you know, that was what would spark the animosity. The trial itself, I mean, uh, you know, was, uh, I, I don't recall if there were even, I mean, there probably were specific charges. I mean, it was, it was obviously not, you know, meant to be, um, you know, the synod was not meant to be anything more than a, a kind of spectacle, but the underlying wrong that Stephen was trying to write, if you could say it that way, was a, a kind of um, sort of political maneuvering that, that Formosus had been involved with and he thought was, you know, an abuse of the, the papacy, basically. Yeah. So, so that's the, that's like the warm up act to the, the first half of the 10th century, the so-called dark ages of the papacy, where we really enter into a period that's sometimes crudely known as, um, yeah, I mean, it's not altogether wrong. It's it's sometimes crudely referred to as the papal hornocracy. So if like democracy is a rule by the people, the demos, and theocracy is a rule by like a religious leader, hornocracy is, let's just say, rule by prostitutes. Let's go with that. That's that's among the safer um, translations. But the the idea is there were a series of 
frankly, there were a series of, of women who were connected to very powerful political leaders who often used their, uh, I gotta be careful here, who, 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 who were often engaging in relationships, uh, you know, to manipulate either popes or, or leading people in the church who were and, and so by so doing, you know, of these women, you know, wound up controlling, in one case, it was sort of a mother and her, her daughter, uh, you know, wound up being involved in a lot of the kind of machinations around who became Pope and how. So just to give you a sense of the instability um, of the papacy during this time, between the year 897 and 955, so that's um, 58 years, there were 17 popes in that in that 58 year period, which is like uh, just over three, on average, just over three years, I guess, right? Three and a half years, something like that per, per pontificate. I was actually just thinking about this in the past 58 years, let's just make the math easy, in the past 60 years, like in our age, 60 years ago would be um, 1961, right? So you had John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 1st, the 2nd, Benedict and Francis. So in the same period, we've had six. They had three, three times as many. Um, and the reason there were so many wasn't just like bad luck or plague or whatever. It was, you know, a lot of maneuvering and conspiracy and forced resignations and and, and lots of other things. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to go through the whole period of, you know, the first half of the 10th century, but there are, you know, some, some, I was going to say highlights, but it's the opposite, I guess, lowlights of this period. So just to, um, just to hit a couple of these, uh, I, I would put them on your outline, but I'll just type them in. So Pope Sergius III was Pope for seven years, as you can see, 904 to 911. He was um, thought to have done a number of things. So he was, he was involved with, um, you know, this mistress with whom he had, um, with whom he had a child. Uh, you know, look, in the Middle Ages, popes having illegitimate children or even into the Renaissance isn't the most unheard of thing. It's not, I'm not going to say it's common, but it, it has happened, you know, with more than just Pope Sergius III. But what was unique about, um, this child of Pope Sergius III is that he was the only Pope to have an illegitimate son that would later become Pope, which is like, you know, hey, you know, following dad's footsteps. Um, in addition to that, he also is thought, and you know, look, it's a thousand years, 1200 years ago, whatever, it's, it's hard to know this with certainty, but sort of the the sense was of people at the time and historians going back have discovered this, that he was involved in ordering the murder 
of um, another pope as well as an anti-pope, somebody who was his rival and had claimed to be pope. So I think that's like the, the papal trifecta, right? You order the murder of a pope, you know, order the murder of an anti-pope and father, an illegitimate son who later becomes pope. Um, you know, there are periods where it's like the gates of hell shall, shall not prevail against the church. Like, you know, you, you sort of think about that a little bit more carefully than in others. And this is probably one of those periods. John the 10th, Pope John the 10th, is our next, uh, next uh, sort of Pope to look at here. See, he was Pope at, from 914 to 928. The woman with whom Sergius III had, you know, had a son, John the 10th was involved with her mother. So it's a sort of a family, as I say, it's a family affair. Um, literally um and john the 10th was involved with the mother of sergius the third's mistress and um wound up elevating a number of his friends to powerful positions in the in the church number of cardinals um john the 11th this is nothing uh, but a coincidence that so many of these uh, during this period uh, take the name John. John the 11th from 931 to 935 is the alleged son of Sergius III. So he was, um, you know, not, not, not that much later, only 20 years after Sergius III stepped down. <laughs> have John the 11th um, but even frankly even in like sort of the church's own you know historical documentation um, he's recorded as being the natural son of Sergius III and then finally John the 12th um, in 955 the last of these who was not not in any of these lines we've been talking about but the same woman who was the mother of John the 11th her name was Marozia she was also the grandmother of John the 12th through a different a different familial line a different one of her children who wound up having a kid who winds up becoming John the 12th. John the 12th becomes Pope when he's a teenager. And was, um, incredibly, I don't know, corrupt, irreverent, you know, uh, pick, pick, pick whatever adjective you want to go for. Um, again, even in the, or church's own reckoning of this. This isn't like from sources that are anti-clerical, but but even you know how the sort of church has commissioned histories and, and whatever in various centuries of the popes. Uh, John the Twelfth is viewed as incredibly um, is kind of incredibly vicious figure, um, 
in one account, it talks about John the Twelfth being thought to celebrate mass without uh, for for long, you know, stretches of time. He would celebrate mass without ever taking communion. That he ordained um, deacons and priests on the spot when he wanted to confer favors. There's one infamous story of him ordaining um, people in a horse stable because they were sort of engaged in, you know, doling out favors and, and this kind of thing. Um, it was He was widely known to have been um, paid to ordain bishops. The people would, you know, buy, uh, you know, a, an ordination as, as bishop. Uh, of, of course, this included... Uh, I shouldn't say, of course. This included uh, one instance of ordaining a 10-year-old as bishop. Um, but, you know, in, in fairness, the 10-year-old the, the, the was very precocious. Um, and so, you know, he, he was a good candidate. Um, there, were, there was widespread testimony during his lifetime about his adultery, um, I mean, a number of um, a number of, of these stories that was said that he turned the papal palace into a brothel. I mean, not literally, but you know, it gives you a sense. Um, that one time he got angry with his confessor. It's nice that he had a confessor. It was Reconciliation Monday in in the New York uh, yeah, dioceses, right. so this feels appropriate to mention. Um, apparently, he got so angry at his confessor one time, uh, I, I, you know, that he blinded him. I think he got more than three Hail Marys, and he was like, you know, that that's just way over the line. Um, and so he blinded his confessor in a bit of rage. Um, oh, at one party, he was said to have toasted the devil with wine, you know, instead of like saying grace the devil I guess you know that's not in the like the book of papal the, the, the book of papal blessings or anything um, apparently frowned upon and um, it's said that uh, towards the latter part of his time as Pope he refused to um, make the sign of the cross and would only invoke Jupiter Venus and other demons So that's John the Twelfth, Rob. Yeah, I, I almost can't resist from asking about this. What about Pope Joan? Oh, Pope Joan. Uh, Is there any truth whatsoever? Oh, I've read back and forth. Yeah, I mean, look, the answer is. Oh well, I'd be violating my own sort of rule or, or guideline if, if I just said no. But I mean, I think the answer is as close to a sort of straightforward no as you can get. Um, there's just no evidence, like real historical evidence. I mean, there, there is a back and forth, there's a historical debate, but the real specialists in the centuries that we're talking about, and, and even, ironically, even um, even the exact date of when there, there may have been an alleged Pope Joan is sometimes contested. Um, there's no concurrent 
uh, you know, or not concurrent. There's no contemporary evidence uh, of such a such a figure. There's no like, oh, you know, we thought we were, you know, we were making this guy pope, and it turned out it was a girl, which is sometimes, you know, the the myth of how how Pope Joan came to be. There there really isn't. I can't remember which journal it was. This would have been like, oh God. It would have been sometime between 2000 and 2010. Now I can't I can't remember the exact year, but I mean, yeah, sometime probably in the last uh, 15 years or so, you know, there was uh, there were, uh, a one of these scholarly church history scholarly journals brought together, you know, a couple of leading experts to just address this, and um, I'm I'm sort of relying on their lifetime of of work on, on this this topic rather than. You know, it's certainly not my own area of expertise, but people whose judgment is, you know, well-regarded and whatever say, you know, there, there just isn't the evidence. Um, and, it, and it seems to have become a sort of a, a kind of myth that was used in a critical way um, against against the church more broadly, but then in particular against the institution of the papacy for being you know, hopelessly corrupt. It turns out, in light of what we we're just saying, I'm not sure you needed to invent Pope Joan in order to prove the corruption of the papacy, but yeah, as best I can tell, um, there's just no evidence. In the in the Catholic's official listing of popes, there's a period of three years where there's a blank, which is when this was supposed to have taken place. And if you look at the non-Catholic list of popes, they list Pope John, which is the interesting thing about it. But they list yeah. Pope John and then put Joan in parentheses. You know, beside it. Yeah, that's right. So the issue, the thing about there being gaps is that's, there were periods and um, late in later centuries, like in the 12th and 13th century, there are, there are at least a couple gaps that span over a year. The, and well, we're not going to get to it today, but soon, you know, we'll talk about, like in our course, we'll talk about, um, um, like the reforms of Hildebrand Gregory the seventh and some other reforming popes. And one of the things they they're involved in reforming is the, the process of papal elections. And, um, they kind of, you know, get closer to the rules that we have today. But my point is simply, you actually see a number of instances where whether the Cardinals couldn't gather or, um, you know, there were just delays where there can be a couple of years that elapse or, you know, one and a half to two years that elapse between popes where there really is no, there's no suspicious reason. It's just, they didn't get around to, to holding the next conclave. Um, and so, yeah, that, that gap is sometimes like, I mean, that's, that's what pointed to, but in and of itself, having a gap isn't particularly, um, suggestive of anything because there were other such gaps that were, you know, maybe a couple of years here or there during this, uh, during these centuries. It's not like today. I mean, you don't, you don't get a Pope on the third ballot. Everybody loses their mind, I think, but, um, you know, it, it would have been not unusual for there to be, you know, six, eight months, let's say maybe even longer before the Cardinals even got together. Um, in some cases, and again, for other reasons, sometimes they just delayed. So that explains the gaps that we sometimes see. This is a more general point. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think, um, 
there have always been, you know, questions about the legitimacy of the history around various, you know, so-called anti-popes. And it's, it's just much harder because, and I'm not even suggesting that there's a, a, an anti-pope named Jonah. I'm, again, I think the consensus is closer to that this is, this is a, sort of a myth, a fictional um, thing. But the problem is with anti-popes, you know, some of them were very, very well known and understood and studied and, you know, had support and others were much more like, you know, kind of crazy people who were, who were disaffected by one thing or another and then declared themselves Pope. And, you know, it, it's just hard to get a read on, um, you know, how seriously some of the anti-popes of the, you know, the first millennium ought to be taken. Um, it, it's, it's one thing when there's, you know, uh, some serious support, but it's another when it's just, as I say, a small faction that's, that's angry at something, um, you know, declaring themselves. So all of that is, you know, between the gaps and the, and the difficulty in discerning the history of, of anti-popes is all a long way to say, there is kind of a murkiness inherent in studying papacy in this era, um, well, in studying the church in this era. And I think that, you know, that has led to people giving credence, if you will, <clears throat> to the possibility of this Pope Joan. But, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it was, was the case. So during this period, why, why didn't anybody stand up to these popes who were playing all these shenanigans? They just allowed it? Yeah. Well, I guess the question is, and, and that's a really good question, but it, it, and I think the answer helps to us sort of to keep in mind just how different the church was um, and how different the world was. I mean, the question, you know, I suppose I might ask in response, like, who would who would stand up to the popes? Um, because you have these kind of rivalrous families in Rome. And so, you know, the enemies of the popes were often just as corrupt or, you know, maybe more corrupt themselves and just sort of seeking power. And the, they were really the ones in control in Rome. The, the bigger question is like, well, you know, what about in other parts of Europe, let's say, Germany, France, you know, whatever. And and then the question becomes like, well, how much of this was, was really, how much were people really aware of mm -hmm. what was going on in Rome? You know, again, some of these popes had several years, um, you know, John the 10th had 14 years um, as pope and and so that's that's a good stretch. But some of them would have been pope for you know five, six, seven months. There was a lot of turnover. You know, as we saw, there was a lot of turnover during this period. And 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 there just wasn't the same connection, you know, across the church and and even um, you know to the pope it's himself, as as we are inclined to think, just given our modern experience of the papacy. And so. It's not to say that there was no no one that was aware of this and opposed to it, but 
the the universe of people that were sort of aware of it and likely to resist, likely to be in a position to do something about it, is like much smaller than we would think of today, because you know it was a far more dispersed, you know, kind of localized experience of the church where, you know, you you might not you might not know who the Pope was when it changed for several months or a year. Eventually, you know, the priest would find out and then he could change who he was praying for in the mass. But besides that, you wouldn't really have necessarily a tremendous amount. You wouldn't pay a ton of attention to the Pope, um, only in, in special circumstances. And so, I mean, I think that's part of why this was able to go on like this, you know, for half a century, because it was kind of mostly contained to Rome. You know, it was a very... I don't know, par- parochial or provincial, one of those words, you know, maybe doesn't feel quite right, but it was a very kind of local set of conflicts. And, you know, it just happened to be the Bishop of Rome, which, you know, obviously has tremendous significance. That makes sense. Thank you. So, well, but to, to that point, or to that question, you know, it's it's one of these sort of really fascinating historical, I don't know, discoveries or developments that the way that the papacy kind of gets pulled out of this mess, which, you know, was clearly kind of a kind of like spiral of, you know, generational... Um, generational rivalry that, that was not really showing any signs of of changing um, you know and, and you have you know from Sergius you know from Sergius the third to John the 11th I mean you literally have you know a father and son combination with a lot of the same activity you know in, in terms of the kind of um, immorality and, and other things you know there's no saying how long this could have gone on and you know what the consequences could have been the the force that really steps into this sort of void or vacuum of of leadership and you know sanity <laughs> um is going to be a political force interestingly enough like a a, a worldly power in this case the the sort of what I'm calling, um, I think I call them the outline, right? The German emperors, um, by which I mean, you know, in, in what's essentially modern day Germany, although it wasn't technically, you know, it wasn't Germany by today's standards. Um, there's going to be a series of emperors in, you know, essentially Germany who become the most powerful political leaders in Europe at the time. And they actually have have a tremendous amount of concern about what's happening to the church, what's happening to the papacy. They're also like, you know, most political leaders, you know, concerned about, you know, their own self-interest and political gain and and all that kind of stuff. But there was also a genuine concern around uh, what was happening in Rome. And these emperors, these political rulers will get involved and ultimately be 
the force that kind of ends this spiral of the dark ages of the papacy and they will actually be the ones that kind of usher in uh, a reforming movement into the papacy so I was saying you know it's like when one the papacy is up the emperors you know the kings and emperors are kind of down and this is like the example par excellence of you know the papacy being down the emperors kind of exerting a lot of power is is this period in the 10th century where the the German emperors become tremendously um, tremendously important now you may be wondering sort of how we um, how we get here uh, the last time we were talking about um, the last time we were talking about um, sort of the political scene we were talking about uh, you know Charlemagne and the Franks and, and all of that and so um, in uh, the early 900s, actually, it was the year 9/11, that the Carolingian dynasty ends. Um, so the sort of last descendant of Charlemagne, who is, you know, capable. He was his name was Louis. He dies, and the em empire, the Frankish Empire, is kind of falling apart. And so there's kind of a a fracturing of what had been the Frankish empire into like, you know, various more localized regional kingdoms, but it was united. Um, it was united by, uh, a very, very capable, uh, ruler who, whose name was Otto, Otto the first. And Otto has a very long, um, a very long reign of 37 years. I'll just, refer um hang on. refer to the same map that we we had looked at last time this is not exactly where we are in the story um but uh what is the year here but it's where we're heading so this europe in 1050 is close to where we are so 840 here's like the the peak of charlemagne and the frankish empire in 911 this starts to fall apart. There's no um, no more Carolingian dynasty after 9/11, and this starts uh, this starts. I, I pointed at it like you could see. Sorry, this starts to um, break apart into a number of different regional kingdoms. And first, Otto the it's Otto the first who is is really the one that drives the reconsolidation of what will become the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and that happens, as you can see um, from your outline, when in the year 962, Otto strikes a deal with Pope John XII, again, John, the sort of uh, infamous John XII, to be crowned as emperor. And the name given to this sort of new empire was the Holy Roman Empire. It was seen as just the next, um, like the next version of what the Roman Empire had been. So it was like, you know, you had Caesar, Augustus, you had Constantine, then you had 
Charlemagne was kind of the next in line. And even though the Carolingian dynasty had come to an end, now you had the reestablishment of this imperial line with the Holy Roman Empire and Otto I. Otto I was, um, you know, incredibly effective military leader and was able to sort of create the right sort of set of alliances to consolidate all of these these kingdoms. I mean, this is a constant problem in um, if I could say it this way, it's a constant problem in German history by which I mean before even there was a Germany, but like that territory that is modern day Germany is has some very distinctive um, very distinctive kind of regional particularities. So, you know, you've got Swabia and Bavaria and Saxony. You've got all of these different regions and, you know, they have kind of more ancient roots in terms of, you know, what's, what's very specific to that region. But it's, you know, in, in some ways we, we suffer from, you know, just knowing a world where Germany existed. And so we have this kind of false sense of like national identity. Um, it, it's far more regionalized and Italy is the same way. Um, you know, because we're, we're all like 20th, 20th century, born in the 20th century, you know, a period of time where Italy didn't exist as a nation, but was rather a series of kingdoms, you know, Naples, Sicily, um, and all of that, you know, that, that it was that way for much longer than it's been a united country, right? And Germany is the same way. My point is simply to say that, you know, going back to the, you know, ninth, 10th century, but even into the, frankly, all the way up to the, the 19th century, this is going to be a problem in this territory. Maintaining political unity is a constant problem. It's, it's uh, for example, as we'll see, it's a driving force in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. The political fracturing of the, the German provinces and the alliances that the princes, you know, wind up striking you know, entering into, you know, is a major factor in the Reformation. But for the time being, all that aside, for the time being, Otto the First is able to consolidate, um, you know, a number of these regional territories into one kingdom. He convinces, again, uh, the Pope at the time, John Twelfth, that uh, he ought to crown him as the next emperor, and that in exchange, Otto would sort of provide some support and protection and favoritism towards the church. Um, so this leads to the crowning in 962 and the establishment from that point of this sort of entity that's called the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire will last until the beginning of the 1800s. Uh, it sort of dissolves in the 19th century. And so it, it enjoys you know, quite a long run there's a funny, I wish I could remember who said it, the, 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 you know, that the ironic thing about the Holy Roman Empire is that it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Um, but for our purposes, we'll call it that. And the, the, the person like that was in charge of it from Otto the first, 
all the way into the 19th century, was known as an emperor, um, emperor so-and-so, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor. Again, in the line of the, the Roman Empire of old, um, obviously a different territorial kingdom, but they saw themselves as, as next in this, um, next in the succession. So Otto the first, um, you know, politically is very important for, for European history, but also for our story, if you will, and in, in terms of church history is tremendously important for his involvement in the, in the church. Um, he was very concerned with the, um, disarray because he found the papacy in and he winds up going to, you know, you know, he winds up kind of camping out in Italy at various stages of his reign, uh, you know, 30 something years, he kind of goes and then he, he comes to Italy, goes back uh, a couple times because he wants to, you know, kind of restore order. So the, the first casualty, if you will, of, of this was actually John XII, who had sort of needed Otto's help and protection, but came soon to sort of regret that because Otto was not impressed with John's, um, you know, it, it, not just his, the immorality, but he, he was not obviously a very effective Pope and, and, and not particularly um, good at, at leading the church. And so Otto, you know, brings his army um, to Rome and, and essentially force, <clears throat> forces out um, John the Twelfth. <clears throat> you know, he, he allegedly, you know, was thought to have sort of resigned, put that in air quotes. Um, and, well, he was deposed, actually, by um, by the other bishops, which is actually a kind of interesting question as to how that works. But uh, John the Twelfth is deposed. Otto sees to the election of a new pope. And then when Otto goes back to, let's just say Germany, um, John the 12th comes back he, and he sort of reestablishes control. And then Otto is on his way back down to, to Rome. Well, actually when, um, when he's on his way back, John XII dies, but the sort of faction that was supportive of John XII supports, uh, you know, picks the new Pope that Otto comes and promptly removes and replaces with somebody uh, more to his liking. In other words, the cost of getting rid of these sort of awful Popes was that the Holy Roman Emperor was now effectively choosing the Pope. In all fairness, uh, <laughs> at this moment in time, this particular moment in the 10th century and somewhat beyond, the Holy Roman Empire was picking better ones. You know, he, the, the Popes were, were more, uh, you know, more stable, less corrupt, less immoral than what we had seen in the so-called Dark Ages. But, you know, it's kind of like, um, 
last time when we were talking about Charlemagne and how the, this moment where Charlemagne and uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Last well, yeah, both Pippin and Charlemagne. When we were talking about the relationship between church and state with the Franks, with the Carolingians, you know, it's like when things are going smoothly and they're going well, it's it's hard to see how the precedent that's being set could come back to, you know, be a, become a problem. And so there's a tendency to look at this period and be like, wow, you know, thank God for the um, the Holy Roman emperors or the German emperors because they kind of rescued the papacy. And there really is something to that. But the cost of that was that in the future, we're not set up for a different kind of conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and future popes because, you know, when the papacy is in crisis, it's one thing. But when they're, you know, reforming measures and, and you know, stronger leaders as pope, they don't want the emperor in their, you know, in their backyard telling them what to do, telling them who to make bishop. And so it's like something that worked as a temporary fix to a real crisis, which is to say the the dark ages of the papacy, was also sort of setting the stage for this later conflict that will come to be known as the investiture controversy, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. So Otto I, you know, was very involved. His successors as Holy Roman Emperor, as, as Holy Roman Emperors, um, a number of his successors were also similarly uh, very involved in church affairs. And just to give you a sense of how long this lasts, um, the next the next person to highlight is the Emperor Henry the Third. Uh, he's on your outline. Henry the Third. Uh, you know, who's emperor until 1056. But, you know, you see, he becomes emperor in 1039. That's, you know, 100 years after Otto became emperor. So this is really like the, the influence of the Holy Roman Emperor on the papacy lasts, you know, over a century, arguably. Henry III um, was a very strong emperor and but also thought to be very devout personally. Um, what had happened, you know, between Otto the first and Henry the third was an increasing tradition of um, the emperor making ecclesiastical appointments. Specifically, the emperor would determine who the bishops in Germany would be. So he would be the one to say, oh, okay, the, you know, the, the, the bishop of Saxony died, you know, we need a new one. Um, instead of the local clergy or whatever, it would effectively be the emperor controlling ecclesiastical appointment. So Henry III, you know, was certainly in this line of, of um, emperors. What was notable about him is, you know, he seemed to really care about um, you know, not just his own power, but about the good of the church. And so when he was appointing bishops in Germany, he, he appointed men with, you know, good character and, and sort of a reforming mindset. So, you know, it wasn't always that when the emperor was appointing these bishops that they were making bad choices. There's going to be a problem here and, you know, an argument about who gets to make these appointments ultimately, but, but again, there were times when the emperors chose pretty good 
bishop. Henry III also got involved, not just in Germany with bishops, but also again with the papacy as it kind of continued to struggle. And there was a particular uh, situation in Rome in, uh, in the middle of the 11th century around um, uh, a series of, of popes or claimants to be pope that began with a, a Benedict the Ninth, this sort of scandal around Pope Benedict the Ninth that's uh, I mentioned on your outline. He was um, not a very good pope. He was not very interested in being pope, and um, you know, you know, had a bad reputation, engaged in you know, sort of corruption and immorality. And so he was ultimately driven out of Rome by a rival family. So he, he was just kind of driven out of the city by his rivals. And the rivals installed a new guy as Pope because, you know, he uh, Benedict was gone. The new guy's name, again, don't worry about the details here, but I'm going to give them to you, was Sylvester III. So you've got Benedict the Ninth out of, driven out of Rome, kind of in exile. And you've got Sylvester III installed by his rivals. Benedict IX comes back. He kind of um, regains enough support, but he doesn't reclaim, you know, the entire city of Rome. He just kind of has support in like one, one section, like one neighborhood, basically. And so he comes back to Rome, claims the church, and claims that he's still the pope. He's still the bishop of Rome. Because he didn't willfully resign, he was pushed out by his enemy. So he said, look, I'm still the Pope. Meanwhile, Sylvester III was kind of, you know, more or less recognized as the current Pope. So now we have um, two Popes in Rome, which, and each of them has possession of a church. But Benedict, as it turned out, started to get... Um, we think probably a little bored, maybe, um, with being Pope, or or so it seemed. It's largely, it's it's typically thought that he was planning possibly to get married, and so you know, obviously he couldn't stay, stay Pope, um, and, and be married. So he, whatever the rate was, he, he he wanted to kind of get out of, you know, get out of this. So he decided, you know, look. If I'm going to get married, you know, his, uh, his fiance or his wife to be had expensive taste. She was like, you know, I want you to, I expect you to, you know, shop at Tiffany's and, you know, you Saint Laurent and all, all those places. Um, so he had to make a buck off of this, um, off of this opportunity. So, you know, like any entrepreneurial, um, soon to be ex-pope, he sold, uh, the papacy. He, he, you know, sold his position to a, another guy who was willing to sort of pay for the opportunity to replace him as as the the bishop of Rome. And he thought that he was kind of keeping this under wraps. And for a period, it seemed like it was. And so the idea was Benedict has sort of resigned and this new guy who took the name Gregory VI has come in. Unfortunately, the whole thing falls apart word gets out that 
that Benedict IX sold his his seat, if you will, sold the papacy. And then, in a stunning turn of events, Benedict IX decides, after all, that he doesn't really want to give up the papacy. That it's actually kind of cool to be pope, and and he doesn't want to get married. You know, uh, it, what happened, I think, she cooked the spaghetti a little too long. He had the temerity to say, honey, next time, please, al dente, let's watch it. At that point, big fight. He says, you know what, I'm better off just staying pope. Um, I think that's a direct quote from the, the sources. So now we've got Benedict IX, we've got Sylvester III, his rival, and we've got Gregory VI, this guy that, that thought he was purchasing the papacy from Benedict IX. All of them are in Rome. All of them, interestingly, you know, we don't have this tradition as clearly, I think, in our modern, well, it's still there ritually, like the idea of taking possession of a church the bishop takes possession of, you know, the uh, yeah, the bishop takes possession of his cathedral. So you have this situation in Rome where you've got three guys now, all claiming to be the bishop, the pope, and all three of them have possession of one of the key, um, one of the major basilicas of the city of Rome. So you have a huge problem here, <laughs> which is understating it slightly. Um, to the rescue um, in this situation, once again, much like the way Otto the first kind of, you know, stemmed the tide or you know stopped the bleeding of what was going on in the 10th century, Henry the third, the emperor, gets word that you know Rome is falling apart. You got three guys, all saying they're the pope. Nobody knows what to do. The whole place is a mess. Henry the third now um, brings his army back down to Rome, convenes a synod, at which under his very clearly, very uh, sort of forceful direction, all three of the um, guys claiming to be Pope were either deposed or forced to resign and banished. And he almost single-handedly, um, you know, ends this, this whole, uh, you know, conflagration with, with his, with the threat of force and with his power as Holy Roman uh, emperor and so after that he you know he sees to the appointment of clement ii um but more importantly clement ii doesn't live very long henry iii um is responsible for the appointment in 1049 of a pope who would be fairly important a guy called leo the ninth henry iii again sort of controlling from this point on until the end of his reign in, in 1056 he's essentially controlling or trying to control who the the pope will be um he, he really represents the sort of high watermark of imperial control over the papacy you know you have a situation where it was a total disaster in rome henry the third comes down to rome immediately you know banishes or deposes all three guys gets you know, some stable men in there as Pope and kind of starts reforming. He starts a reforming impulse that will ultimately lead the church out of this period into, you know, one that's much more um, fruitful. And we'll, we're, we're going to turn now, or next, because it's not going to be now, but we're going to turn to sort of 
the reforming impulse that Leo the Ninth represents, you know, the origins of that come from religious revival and eventually, you know, in monasteries, as we'll see, and then eventually work their way up sort of up the hierarchy, if you will, so that, you know, by the time we get to Leo the Ninth, we can understand how these reform movements entered into the church and, and sort of see see where their trajectory will take us. But for now, I think, you know, as we close today, I'm going to stop here in a second, see if there are any questions. It's just like a kind of remarkable period, you know, the 10th and 11th centuries in, in thinking about the relationship between church and state, the relationship with the emperor to the pope, and how, you know, in, in many ways, the, the, the papacy was sort of in, engaging in sort of self-destruction. And it was the, you know, series of Holy Roman emperors who, who restored stability and sanity. Okay, any questions? You know, the main thing is, as we enter into this Holy Week, I, I wanted to give you something really nourishing and spiritually enriching. And No, actually, you know, in a way, sometimes these really, like, dark moments can be, can be actually very good opportunities for that. Um, it'd be awfully hard to understand how this institution survived. Um, if, if you if you knew about this part of the history, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to come up with an explanation that didn't involve the supernatural in some capacity. I think. Um, so in a way, even though I'm kind of joking about it, maybe it is appropriate for Holy Week. Um, but on that note, let me just also wish everyone a, a, a good rest of Holy Week and a blessed Triduum. And since we won't see each other next week, uh, you know, I wish everyone obviously a very happy Easter. And uh, I look forward to reconvening in two weeks. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it very much, as always. Take the care. Thank you. Happy, Thank you. Easter. Happy, Happy Easter. Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Yeah. Happy Easter, everyone.